Hi there, the book is available to purchase right now. You could even read along if you'd like. Wouldn't that be fun? Welcome back to Murder on Sex Island. Written and read by me, Joe Firestone. This is episode 10, where I'll be reading chapters 35 through 38. If you just listened to episode 9, you can jump ahead. Otherwise, here's a little summary of the last few chapters. AJ is still missing. The whole cast was forced into a physical challenge that nearly killed Luella. Ethan was acting like quite the caretaker. And Luella was starting to realize Phil was a little obnoxious. Her teeth broke, so now she's resorted to using chiclet gum. And she just decided to check out Stephanie's apartment to look for clues. Chapter 35 Knowing she'd be at work, I scanned my key fob at Stephanie's door and got in, no problem. I was starting to think this George Stryker community effort was the greatest thing to happen to the private detective industry in years. Immediately, her apartment seemed different than it had before. The tapestry on the wall was gone, many of the homey touches now missing. The framed photos with the family, the blanket, the tea kettle, all gone. Maybe she was in the process of decluttering? Or had she really been putting on an act for me? I stood in the entryway, listening for any sounds of a trapped adult man within the apartment. Hearing nothing, I proceeded with caution, starting with the bedroom. The only thing under her bed was a ten-pound dumbbell covered in a thin layer of dust. I looked inside her closet, but all I found were heels, pencil skirts, and a couple blazers still in their plastic dry-cleaning bags. I went through her drawers. Not that I thought I would find AJ in her drawers, but maybe there'd be a clue or two. Everything was organized. Orderly stacks of thong underwear, folded socks, three identical tan underwire bras, a four-inch paring knife. Okay, a four-inch paring knife was interesting. I wondered why someone would keep a knife in their underwear drawer. Perhaps as a warning to snooping people like me? I thought of the strange incision around David G.'s belly button. Could that have been done with a four-inch paring knife? I moved on to the bedside table. People usually kept their personal goodies stashed away in these drawers. Inside, I found a bottle of extra-strength melatonin, a car key, and a pile of six sticky notes. I pocketed the car key and read through the notes. It seemed Stephanie had something of a romance going on. In order, they said... Call me tonight. Bibi, gimme what I need. Miss your mouth, Bibi. Miss you, Bibi, frowny face. I love you, I love you, I love you. Love you, Steffi, Bibi. Well, whoever this mystery author was, they were somewhat of a medium speller. Their handwriting was legible, but their words tended to be written close together, the spacing uneven. I noticed that all the letters slightly slanted to the right. I'd read somewhere that if your letters slanted to the left, that meant you were introverted, but if they slanted to the right, that meant you craved human interaction. I tried to remember where I'd read that, most likely on the bottom of a Snapple cap. I gave the theory little weight. The writer had employed various ballpoint and gel pens, but always wrote on yellow post-it notes. I could see the faint imprint of the words, Miss you, BB, on the note that said, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
The notes must have been written on the same pad. It seemed what had started as mostly sexual relationship between Stephanie and the writer had evolved over time into something more emotional, at least from the author's perspective. I examined the top one again, the one that said, Call me tonight. I held the little yellow note up to the sun shining through Stephanie's bedroom window. I wanted to see if perhaps there was an imprint on this one too, something to indicate who the writer was, other notes they'd written before this love tirade. I tilted the note, and finally, the sun hit it just right. I saw what looked to be the faint imprint of some sort of list. I could only make out a few of the letters. T something something, T-H-P-A something, M-O-U-T something I couldn't make out after that, then milk, it was definitely milk, and then something something G-S. A list, a list. I thought about why people made lists. Possibly it was a to-do list or a grocery list. Milk was a grocery. Milk and then whatever T T H P A was. Perhaps toothpaste. So it was a grocery list. Milk, toothpaste, mouthwash, and eggs. Certainly not the most revealing grocery list of all time. If anything, it seemed almost too basic. I took a photo to study later on. I had several more apartments to get to before the end of the shoot that day. The fact that Stephanie kept these notes in her bedside drawer did not escape me. She must have been emotionally invested. But why only six of them, I wondered. Maybe it was a short-lived romance. I knew I should move on to the other apartments, but quickly I wanted to check out her bathroom while I was there. On the sink, I found a bottle of Stella by Stella McCartney. I remembered loving that scent, the notes of amber and citrus. It had been discontinued years ago. How did she get her hands on a new bottle? The scent triggered something for me. That morning in my apartment when my teeth first went missing, this must have been the perfume I smelled. I removed the cap and sprayed some on my wrist to be sure, which I only realized was a huge mistake right as I did it. I could picture the ensuing conversation going as such. Stephanie would say, Hi, Luella. Say, why do you smell like my discontinued eau de toilette Stella by Stella McCartney? And then I would say, Well, Stephanie, it's a tale as old as time. I was in your apartment looking for a missing man. And oh, did you know you have a knife in your underwear drawer? That's kind of weird. Sometimes I am very stupid, like rocks for brain level stupid. I tried washing off the perfume and was in the midst of scrubbing away at my wrist when I heard a noise. Someone else was entering the apartment. I willed my body to move quickly and quietly into the shower, leaving a small gap between the plastic curtain and the wall so I might see who'd come in. I heard whoever it was, intruder number two, rummaging around in the kitchenette, then moving on to the living room. Based on the drawer slams and heavy breathing, it sounded like they were desperately looking for a specific something or someone, and they hadn't found it yet. Whoever it was stormed into the bedroom. From where I was standing, I couldn't see much without being seen myself. I heard grunts, then some kind of bone-hitting metal sound, and a man's voice letting out a strained, Motherfuck! It took a second, but I soon registered the voice. What the hell was John doing here? John? I called out from inside the shower curtain. Silence ensued. 
Luella? John called back, more confused than anything else. He limped into the bathroom and pulled back the shower curtain. We both looked at each other with a mix of shock and confusion. What are you looking for? I asked him. I have the same question, he replied. And what the hell happened to your tooth? Damn it. Chapter 35A Before we continue any further, I should say that intuition can be misleading. Whatever theories I had at that moment were just that. Theories. I still had nothing in terms of cold, hard evidence. I was being cautious this time. I didn't want to jump to conclusions. That was how I'd messed up the bell case. I'd trusted my intuition and it blinded me to evidence that was staring me right in the face. I sent the wrong man to jail, and for that I will always feel responsible. See, Julia Bell's murder was my biggest case yet. News outlets couldn't get enough of this beautiful missing woman. The police assumed her husband, Taylor Bell, did it. But Taylor was my client. I knew Taylor. He struggled with minor depression, some social anxiety. There was no way he killed his own wife. It took three weeks to find her body. In the first week of her disappearance, Bell uncovered a series of sexy text messages between Julia and his best friend, Mark Lassiter. During a session, Taylor confessed to me he felt utterly shocked, betrayed, and alone. Like a dope, I believed him. Luella did some digging and found out Julia actually had been having an affair with Lassiter for the last six months prior to her disappearance. This guy, Mark Lassiter, was a shady character, to say the least. He had prior arrests for domestic assault, and he didn't exactly pay his taxes. He was your run-of-the-mill piece of shit. I found bloody gloves in the trunk of Lassiter's car, and the blood came back a confirmed DNA match to Julia Bell. I was convinced Mark Lassiter was the murderer. My intuition told me to trust Taylor Bell, that he was telling me the truth. As his social worker, I never stopped to think that he'd fastidiously studied depression and anxiety prior to seeing me, that he'd pretended to have the symptoms of both, so when he finally did kill his wife, something he'd been premeditating for years, his social worker could testify that he would never, ever do such a thing. Poor depressed Taylor Bell? No way. Mark Lassiter was eventually released from jail after someone finally confirmed his alibi. He really had been at a Wagner Seahawks basketball game at the time of the murder. I tried to keep tabs on him for a while after that. Google alerts, questionably legal geotags, etc. But he managed to move out of Staten Island and off the grid. I wondered where he was these days, what he was up to. Hopefully he wasn't a fan of the nationally broadcast show Sex Island. This is all just to say why I was hesitant to jump to any conclusions, particularly about John Murphy. Chapter 36 Back to Stephanie's apartment, in which John and I were both independently breaking and entering. Since I was the private investigator and part of my job was rifling through other people's things, I insisted John explain himself first. He hemmed and hawed for a while before getting to the point. I just, I'm trying to find something of hers, okay? He seemed more flustered than usual. What? I asked, still standing in the shower. John closed the lid of the toilet, sat down, and put his head in his hands. He let out a long sigh, then looked up to the ceiling. 
I think Stephanie is hiding something, something that could lead us to AJ and help us figure out what happened to David G. That's why I'm here, okay? You talked to AJ's family? I asked. It was proving very difficult to talk with the chiclet tooth. It was getting softer by the second. He nodded. I did. I told him we were doing everything we could to find him. What's with step... Step... It turned out I could no longer pronounce Stephanie with the gum for a tooth. What's with her? I managed. There were rumors she was having an affair with David G. just before he died. I mean, she was his boss, he said. But what was I supposed to do about it? Say something to her? This was my first year on the job. Anyway, if you want to know my theory, I think Stephanie killed David G. because he threatened to tell a network. Then she got a taste for blood. Then she killed AJ. My mouth went dry. AJ's dead? In this scenario, AJ's dead, he paused, then added, which is very sad. Uh Uh-huh. My adrenaline was wearing off. The shooting pains in my tailbone had started up again. Luella, things have gone too far, so I decided I'm going to help you solve this case. I'm not trying to mansplain or whatever. I just have a hunch and I'm going for it. It's worth noting that this kind of go-get-em attitude is what got me so far in TV production in the first place. John was wearing thin on me. Does Steph... Does she own a car? I asked. No, definitely not. Why, you need a car? I could get a passenger van again if you need a ride. That was nice, getting milkshakes with you. John, where does AJ live? I asked. Uh, um, I think we put him in 4A or 4B, maybe 4G. I'll have to double check, he said. Find out, I said, as I slowly climbed out of the shower and made my way to the front door. My legs were shaking and my back had begun to spasm. I felt like I had 20 minutes left before my body gave out again. Wait, where are you going now? John asked, following me like a 38-year-old Labrador retriever. I tried to think. AJ was new here. Where could he be? He disappeared sometime between the hours of 5.20 p.m. Wednesday and 6 a.m. Thursday. Maybe he was in one of the guy's places. It'd definitely be worth checking out. Or Blair. When he brought up Blair that evening, he'd said, Wish me luck. Maybe he was going to see Blair after he saw me. Blair's place, I replied, walking out the door. My pronunciation was so garbled it must have sounded like I was drunk. Okay, I'm coming with you, he said, closing a door he'd left open in the kitchenette. He shut Stephanie's door behind us. We keyed into Blair's place, which on first impression looked like a Lisa Frank acid nightmare. She'd painted the walls a neon violet color, which managed to give the already small apartment a claustrophobic quality. The place smelled like a peach vape. John started sneezing. Everywhere I looked, I saw unicorns, kittens, and rainbows. If this was the inside of Blair's head, I was even more afraid of her than I thought. Most notably, though, was Blair's choice of wall art. Hung everywhere were large framed nudes of Blair on horseback. There was Blair nude on a horse above the couch, and there was Blair nude on a horse in the kitchenette, and there was Blair nude on a horse holding a baseball bat next to the TV. Apparently Blair loved horses. I'd say she loved them too much. John wasn't as thrown by the decor as I was. Maybe he'd been in there before. For a first-timer, it was too much to take in at once. 
This place was like the Metropolitan Museum of Rainbows and Horse Nudes. We walked into the bedroom, which more or less shared the same motif as the rest of the apartment. Rainbows, sequins, a framed Blair naked on a horse. John nudged me. What are we looking for in here? Don't know, I said, scanning the room for something that might be out of place. Then I saw the hat. The flat-brimmed Jets hat that A.J. wore on his first day was sitting on Blair's dresser. My arms broke out in goosebumps. I tried to think, was he wearing the hat at my apartment Wednesday evening? I couldn't remember. I'd have to check the fourth floor security cameras. If A.J. was wearing the hat, then Blair must have been who he went to see next. Maybe she was the last person he ever saw. I tapped John on the shoulder. The hallway security footage, I mumbled. You want to watch it? Which floor? Seven's been broken for at least a month now. Fourth floor, I tried to say. I gave up and resorted to holding up four fingers. No prob. I'll text the super now. He sneezed three times in a row. We're like a detective duo, huh? Sherlock and Watson, baby. I should get me a pipe. John wandered back into the living room, fully engrossed in his phone. I looked again at AJ's hat on Blair's dresser. I hoped it wasn't there as a hunting trophy. John rushed back into the bedroom. Shit, Francis' flight got in early. I should go pick her up from the airport. You good? All good, I said, flashing him a peace sign. Honestly, I was relieved to get rid of him. John dashed out. My strength was fading. I searched the apartment once more, but besides the hat and the poor horses, I found nothing too out of the ordinary. I decided Phil's place was next. I made sure Blair's door was shut and ambled over to Phil's across the hall. I waved my key fob and tried the door handle, but it didn't work. Usually a green light appeared and then the door would click open. Instead, the light was red. I tried again. Still red and no click. Strange. I felt my phone buzz in my pocket and checked it. Sophie had sent me a cute photo of Meatloaf curled up in a circle on the couch along with two text messages. Your cat is in my spot. Can I push it off couch? I felt a pang of homesickness. I wondered how much longer I'd be on this island. How much longer until I had some answers. That reminded me to text Lauren. Hey, I'm sorry about AJ. I'm going to find him, okay? Three dots appeared, then disappeared. Lauren was calling me. I picked up. Hey, I said. What the hell is going on with my cousin? I could hear Lauren's breathing. She was running. Didn't John talk to your family? I asked, hoping there'd been a mistake, hoping she could understand me through the broken teeth. Who is John? No one said anything to us. But AJ wasn't on the show yesterday. What's going on, Marie? I took a deep breath and filled her in on everything I knew so far. At least my intuition was correct on one thing. John could not be trusted. Chapter 37 I told Lauren I'd keep her in the know from here on out. I didn't want to believe John was purposely lying to me. I felt like I'd let him in that morning, and I already regretted it. My head was spinning. I needed to go back to my room, drink some water, take a nap, eat something. By that point, I think I'd swallowed the gum tooth because it was no longer in the front of my mouth. I was walking toward the elevator bank on the seventh floor when I heard what sounded like air escaping from a tire. 
I stopped and waited for the noise to repeat. A few seconds later, I heard it again. The sound was coming from the trash room across the elevators. I tried my key fob and the door opened. Immediately, I was confronted with a strong animal odor. Inside the trash room, I saw what looked like a human leg behind three large trash bags. My breath caught in my chest. I shoved the bags out of the way, and underneath, I found AJ lying on the ground unconscious. His wrists were tied together, and so were his ankles. His mouth had been duct taped shut. A trail of dried blood looked like it came from his nose. I felt a faint pulse and immediately called 911. I asked for an ambulance and the police. I knelt down and whispered to him, It's going to be okay, as I gently pried the duct tape off his mouth. If it hurt him, he didn't show it. His eyelids barely fluttered. I repeated over and over, AJ, I'm here. AJ, it's going to be okay. The minutes went by like hours. The ambulance arrived first, then the police. Detective Johannes got there and gave me a nod. Stephanie must have heard the sirens from set. She followed the police into the apartment building, insisting that she was an executive producer and that she be told what was going on. I could hear her yelling from the elevators. When the doors opened, she came face to face with AJ's limp body on a stretcher. She was finally speechless. She looked at me. What happened to him? Her voice was shaky. I told her how I'd found him. She cleared her throat and excused herself to make some calls. I didn't know quite what to make of her. The police busied themselves dusting for fingerprints and photographing the crime scene, so I excused myself to call Lauren again. I let her know what happened, and she sounded grateful for the update. Two friends reuniting over an almost dead cousin. It sounded like its own horrible lifetime movie. I went back to my place to lie down. I looked at the time. Somehow it wasn't even noon. I took another dose of Tylenol and curled up on the couch. The next thing I knew, I woke up to someone knocking on my door. I felt groggy and stiff and like someone had hit me with a car. I'd unfortunately napped with the wig on. My scalp was so itchy I thought my brain was going to explode. I answered the door. John stood there with a petite woman in her late 20s I took to be Frances, David G.'s sister. She had dark, shoulder-length hair and David G.'s same eyes. Frances introduced herself and shook my hand. I smiled and saw them both register my missing front tooth at the same time. I quickly pulled my shirt over my mouth and kept it there. Turtle mode was the only solution. I was telling Frances on the ride over here how we're working together to solve the case, John said. Was that why he decided to help me? To impress his ex-girlfriend? Can we come in? He asked. I rubbed my eyes. Sure. I led them into the living room and they each took a seat on the couch. Sitting next to each other like that, they really did look like a couple. I went to my fridge to see what I could offer them in the world of refreshments. All I had was coffee and that Tupperware of Phil's red jello. Jello? Coffee? I asked. Francis said yes to the coffee. John said yes to the jello. I put a pot on, scooped some jello into a bowl for John, and joined them in the living room. I heard you found AJ, John said, then turned to Francis. It's the strangest thing. Luella keeps being the one to find these guys. She was the one to find your brother, too. I wasn't sure I liked what John was implying. Francis spoke again, attempting to break the tension. 
I know you're doing a lot for my brother's case, and if there's anything I can do to help, please let me know. I nodded, the lower half of my face still inside the shirt. What was he like? I asked. He was just... Frances wiped a tear from her eye. He was just so kind. He was a nurse, you know, and he wanted to be an actor, too, like Patch Adams. I didn't think that was like Patch Adams at all, but this was neither the time nor the place to correct her. She pulled out a tissue and blew her nose. Meanwhile, John ate his jello like it had done something to his mother. Francis continued. He was a good guy, always very trusting of people. Women adored him. She blew her nose again. Excuse me, do you have a bathroom? I nodded and pointed her in the right direction. As she left the room, John followed her with his eyes. Once she was out of sight, he turned back to me, set down his empty dish, and pulled out his phone. So the super sent me video footage from the fourth floor hallway cameras? Look at this. On his phone, I watched a grainy black and white AJ leave my apartment at 5.21 p.m., wearing his flat-brimmed Jets hat. It was very possible Blair was the last person he saw, unless there was someone else after Blair. Wait, I gotta show you this other crazy thing, John said. He fiddled with his phone, then turned it toward me again. Security also sent me footage from the penthouse hallway. Look at this. I watched as a grainy black and white Marie entered and eventually exited George Stryker's apartment. My neck and scalp felt hot. John played the footage again, this time at half speed. Like, who the hell is that? He asked. He paused the video where my face was most visible, then zoomed in closer using his thumb and forefinger. He looked back at me then, a smirk beginning to form in the corner of his mouth. Luella, I'd say that's our suspect, whoever that is. Chapter 38 John and Francis left my apartment soon after. Francis claimed she was tired from traveling, and John said he had to get back to set. Something had definitely shifted between me and John since that morning. Did he honestly think I was the one who killed David G and stored AJ in a trash room? The lady doth protest too much. He was starting to seem more and more like Stephanie. I made my way back to the seventh floor trash room to see if there was anything I missed in the chaos of finding AJ. When I got there, the place was covered in police tape, but no one stood guard, so I snuck back in. The three trash bags that had been covering AJ's body had been pushed to the side by the paramedics, and the police hadn't touched them. They were still there. I figured whoever put AJ in there likely put those trash bags in there too. I untied the largest one. I looked inside and froze. The bag contained what must have been six empty gallon jugs. I picked one up and looked at the label. Prestone antifreeze. Whoever's trash this was either had a ton of cars or a ton of people to slowly poison. I had a feeling whatever the killer had done to David G., he or she had also done to AJ. The other two bags were filled with bedding, sheets, pillows, and a black-and-white pattern comforter. I recognized them from every apartment I'd seen in that building. These were standard issue. I wondered why someone would throw away a whole set of bedding. When I finally smelled it, I nearly keeled over. Vomit. Old vomit. 
I carefully sifted through the bag's contents for the source, which wasn't too hard to find. The fitted and top sheet both had a large amount of greenish vomit residue. Unfortunately, the experience induced a similar reaction in me, and I promptly puked all over the potential crime scene evidence. Not my finest hour. I shoved the now-tainted sheets back into the trash bag and lugged all three bags back to my apartment. If the murderer returned to the scene of the crime, I wanted them to know someone was on to them. There was so much new information to process. I went to get my notebook from the bedroom, but it was nowhere to be found. And I had a feeling I knew just who had taken it. My phone buzzed. It was a text from Detective Johannes. AJ Alive but comatose. King's Hospital, fifth floor. I would deal with the missing notebook later. I called a taxi and headed out to the hospital. Twenty minutes later, I arrived at King's Hospital. There were two high-rise buildings connected by one of those sky walkways that looked like it was designed by a fan of the Jetsons. I texted Detective Johannes. Which building? Minutes passed and he didn't respond. On a hunch, I went with the building on the left and optimistically took the large elevator up to the fifth floor. I peered down the brightly lit hallway and spotted what looked like a Johannes-shaped man standing guard outside one of the hospital rooms. I waved and was relieved to see the detective Johannes shape wave back. He was further away than I thought, and the freshly waxed floors squeaked as I walked the long hallway. Quite an entrance I was making. Detective Johannes greeted me with a handshake. Luella, so soon. He showed me into the hospital room. There were two single beds divided by a blue checkered curtain. An older man slept in the bed closest to the door. We tiptoed past so as not to wake him. Johannes peeled back the blue curtain to reveal A.J. lying in the hospital bed by the window. He had six different tubes going in and out of his tattooed arms. His complexion was gray. I could see ligature marks on his wrists from where the rope had been tied. His eyes were closed, but he was breathing. The heart monitor was beeping regularly. I let out a deep sigh of relief. I could see it with my own eyes. A.J. was alive. Johannes stood at the foot of the bed and spoke in an almost whisper. The doctors say he's stabilized, but nobody's tried talking to him. He hasn't woken up yet. I nodded and took a seat on the vinyl chair next to the bed. Johannes tugged at his mustache. I'm going to go make some calls. If you need me, I'll just be outside he said, and stepped out of the room. I had a theory, but it felt far-fetched. I didn't want to ruin my credibility with Johannes, so I waited until I heard his shoes squeaking far down the hallway. Then I lifted AJ's hospital gown around his midsection and gasped. His navel was covered in a hospital bandage, just as I'd suspected. He'd been sliced, just like David G., the killer had something of a trademark. AJ's eyes stayed closed and his breathing remained steady. I watched his chest move up and down, up and down, up and down. I sat there with AJ for close to an hour, texting Lauren periodically to let her know he was stable. I must have fallen asleep in the chair because I woke with a furious tailbone and a scalp on fire. I checked my phone, three texts and a missed call from Ethan. Hey, where are you? Can we talk? You okay? I called him back, and he picked up before the first ring had ended. Hey, what's up? I whispered. We gotta talk. Where are you? He asked. Hospital with AJ. What's up? 
He's alive. Ethan's voice hitched and he cleared his throat. Well, when can you be back? I looked at the time. It was 3 p.m. By 6, I said. I needed to do a few things first. Okay, meet at my place at 6. I'm an 8A, he said. Hanging up, I wondered what in Ethan's world could be so urgent. I stood up to go, not realizing I'd sweat through my shirt. What was left of my burnt back skin had formed a bond with the vinyl of the hospital chair. The pain that ensued caused me to erupt in a series of expletives so loud I accidentally woke the sleeping old man in the bed next to AJ's. As I shuffled out of the room, I found him sitting up in bed and giving me the finger. Sorry, feel better, I whispered. Johannes was still sitting in the fifth floor waiting room when I walked out. He asked if I needed a ride back. I said, sure. He drove a policeman's standard-issue Dodge Charger. Johannes grabbed an old fast-food bag that had been sitting on the passenger seat and shoved it into the glove compartment, and they say chivalry is dead. We both buckled up, and Johannes nodded over at me. You know, I got a guy who could fix that front tooth for you. I'll send you his info. I told you, nobody ever misses a missing front tooth. I brought up AJ's navel incision. He said he'd check his system for matching modus operandi. I doubted he'd find one. Johannes did too. If I had to guess, I'd say we are dealing with a very inexperienced killer, he said. That means he might slip up, but until we catch him, he'll be unpredictable. He? I asked. Johannes shrugged his shoulders. Maybe. I looked around the car's interior. I'd actually never been in the front of a police car before. Know much about cars? Sure, what do you need to know, he asked. I pulled out a car key I'd taken from Stephanie's bedside table. What's this for? Johannes took the key, turned it around, and examined it closely. The top of the key was black plastic, and I didn't notice until then that there was a small logo engraved at its center. If I'm not mistaken, that's a Dodge Ram. See? Dodge. He held up his own keys next to the one I'd given him. The engraved logos matched. He continued, but it must be an older model. Doesn't have lock buttons like the newer ones do. He handed the key back to me. If I had to guess, you're looking for an older model Dodge, maybe from 2004 to 2006. What was Stephanie doing with a key to a 2006 Dodge? Maybe it was sentimental, a first car or something? But who kept their car key in a bedside table? Perhaps someone who didn't use the car a lot, if at all. Maybe this key was for emergencies only? Or maybe she was keeping it for a friend? I wondered how long until she'd realized it was missing. This has been chapters 35 through 38 of Murder on Sex Island, read by the author, Joe Firestone, and that is me. This podcast is produced by Barry Finkel. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Episode 11 comes out next week. I'll be reading chapters 39 and 40. Some questions to ponder in the meantime. Is Ethan a good guy? Is gum a replacement for teeth? Till next time.